good to be here with you this morning. What a celebration we've had already this morning from a baptism to getting to be uh, with our wise ones. I don't like saying seniors. I like saying wise ones. It comes out of a verse in Proverbs. Uh, in Proverbs, it says, uh, gray head is the crown of glory because it's of a righteous life. And so if you have gray hair, it's because you have lived a righteous life according to, to the word of God. I'm so grateful to be at Palace Chapel. I love Palace Chapel for this reason, that we are a multi-generational church. We're not just a young church, and we're not just an old church. We have all ages. I really believe this is what the kingdom of God will look like, that God will, in all of heaven, we'll see all age groups. And so I'm just grateful that we don't have an old church, and we don't have a young church, but we have a multi-generational church. And so it's just great to be in the house of the Lord. And thank you, seniors, for singing and using your gifts to lead us to the throne room uh, of God this morning. This morning, we will continue our series in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We'll look at the last uh, letter to uh, the, the seventh church, the church of Laodicea. Um, I said this a few weeks ago, a few months ago, that after this series, we'd go into the book of Acts to look at what does is, what is the church look like. But after studying over the last seven or eight weeks for this and getting prepared for next week and the next a few weeks the sermons I really feel like God has laid on my heart we'll go through an extensive series on uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 uh, right now it's going to take us about uh, it might sound like a long time but I really feel like God has something for us about 32 weeks to get through uh, those three chapters in the book of Matthew uh, following out of this series we've talked about what the church is and what the church is and what the church needs to be and so in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, Jesus invites us in chapter 4, at the very end of chapter 4, he invites those who are listening that they would become kingdom citizens. The kingdom of God is at hand, is what Jesus says to his followers. And then he goes into this sermon, the longest sermon, in my opinion, that is in the Bible. Some think it's broken up into pieces and, and it's a collection of sermons. I believe it was a one-time sermon on the Mount. Uh, that Jesus gave. And so we'll look at over the next several months the Sermon on What does it mean for us coming out of this series? If Jesus were to write Powell's Chapel a letter, that's what we've kind of based this whole series on. What would that letter have said? And then we talked last week. Uh, I think it w really would be the church that we looked at last week, a, a word of encouragement to us. And now in this next series, we'll look at what does it look like for us that now that we are kingdom citizens, that God has invited us into this kingdom, God's kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, how are we to live out our lives practically? And Jesus gives us some practical steps that we'll look at over the last next several months. Um, we'll take a few breaks here and there uh, for certain things, but for the most part, for the next 32 weeks or so, we'll be in the book of Matthew uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. So if you want to read ahead, just start reading chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. We'll be there for uh, a good portion uh, of this year and most of uh, next year. Um, maybe that sounds like a daunting task, uh, but I love teaching verse by verse through the Bible. I, I think um, for me to understand God's word, I must study it verse by verse, word by word. And so we'll do that through this next series. But as we come today, we'll look at the last letter, the letter to uh, Laodicea. This church, much like the church in Ephesus that we first started with, had lost its first love, and so Jesus writes them a letter to draw them back to their first love, and maybe that's you 
this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you've wandered away from the Lord. You've strayed from the Lord and you've lost your first love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning we'll look at what does it look like and what does it mean for us to be called back to God. Uh, This church had become very self-reliant, self-sufficient. I think so often that's what happens in our lives when we wander away from the Lord. We become self-sufficient. We don't see our great need for God. Uh, That God had redeemed us and saved us and so we have the, we've accomplished the greatest need. We're no longer going to hell and we kind of go with the rest of it and live our lives how we think is best for us. That's what happened in this church. And so we'll see what God through Jesus has to say about this church. So let's pray and we'll get started this morning. God, I'm so grateful for this place, uh, your house, the church, house chapel. I'm grateful even this morning. Uh, This morning we have a snapshot of what the kingdom will look like, your heaven will look like from young to old, God, that you've redeemed all and you've set all free. Uh, I pray that we would celebrate um, this morning all that you've done. Uh, baptism, a young man giving his life to you, surrendering his will and his life over to you as Savior and Lord. That is a, an amazing deal that only you can accomplish. And so even this morning, God, we got to witness a miracle because salvation, our salvation is a miracle. Because there's nothing in it that we do. You do it all for us. You redeem us through the blood of your son Jesus. I'm grateful for that. And God, for our seniors. I'm so grateful for the older, wiser men and women of this church that paved the way for young men like myself. God, what a godly example that we have here at Powell Chapel. Just wise, godly men and women of the faith that paved the way for us young people so grateful for that. I pray that you would continue to use them in our lives and continue to use them to point us to you. So we give you this morning, have your way in this place, continue to lead and transform us. I pray that none of us would be the same as when we came in this morning. We give you this morning, it's yours. Give it as an offering. Take our lives, Lord. We praise this in Christ's holy and mighty name. Amen. Let's read the letter to the church in uh, Laodicea. The, the the outline will be the same as the last uh, six weeks. We'll look at the, the city, we'll look at the church, we'll look at the, uh, the authorship of the king who wrote the letter, we'll look at the address, what the king addresses in the church, and then we'll look at his affirmation to the church. So here's what Jesus says and tells John to write. It says this in verse 14, chapter 3 of Revelation, uh, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were e- either cold or hot? I would rather you be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17. For you say I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful. Poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from the gold, from my gold, refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may be clothed, clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may be, so that you may see. Verse 19: Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to, to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on, the throne, on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we be blessed by the reading of God's Word. This morning, what we'll look at, we'll look at this small church, the last church. It's about the city of Laodicea. is about 100 miles uh, east of Ephesus. You'll see in this, uh, this letter what is happening in the city because what happens in this city, it's got a large Jewish population, much like the other churches. So Jewish uh, tradition was very infiltrating the, the Christian culture, the Christian church, and Jesus is going to uh, respond to that. It was, a, it was a very important commercial city. A lot of trade happened, like some of the other cities that we talked about. So it was a, a very important for its commercial. It was known as a very, very wealthy city, so much so that in about 60 AD that the city experienced a massive earthquake. Just like some of the other cities that we had talked about, they had help from Rome. The other cities had help from Rome to rebuild their city, but this city was so wealthy that it used no money of Rome. It rebuilt itself with its own money. And we'll see how that comes into play in this passage. Uh, another thing that this city was known for was it was known as a medical community, much like Nashville is known for its medical community. Uh, we'll see it's in particular, it it's, was one of the first cities ever to have the study of uh, optometry. That's why you'll see he talks about the eyes and needing salve for the eyes because it had such this uh, amazing city for uh, just the study of the eye and the medicine of the eye. And so Jesus is going to talk about that. Uh, other than that, it's known for its wool production. As you will see that we read, he says, clothe yourselves. We'll get into that. So we're going to see how Jesus goes back to the city, uses the culture of the city to begin to explain to them how they've wandered away and have become lukewarm. So that's the city of Laodicea, a very important city, um, a very small city, but had a great tradition. Now the church of Laodicea, very, very, very little is known about this church. Uh, much like the other ones, the, what most historians say is that uh, it did get planted out of the church of Ephesus. That's the reason it's so close, 100 miles away from the church of Ephesus. And, but other than that, we know very little. Some scholars say, uh, if you have heard or read the book of Philemon, Philemon's son is the one who started both the church of uh, Laodicea and also the letter that Paul wrote, the church of Colossae. He, this, this young man start both of these churches. That's what most histori historians say. Scholars say that this young man, Philemon, the book of Philemon, his son, is the one that started these churches um, with Paul's help. But Paul did not indirect, he indirectly started, he did not himself start the church. Other than that, we know very little about the church. So this is what Jesus now writes to this small church in this small town. He says to them, so he's going to set himself up as the author of the letter. And what does he first address in himself? He says this, I know your works. He said that in the last six letters. Remember, the, that phrase right there is talking to the believers of the church, that he knows them intimately. And he knows them so intimately, he knows what he's about to address with them. And we've talked about that over the last six weeks, that for we must serve a God that knows us intimately so he can address us intimately. God knows the depths of our heart. 
even though no one else may know, God knows what's going on internally. We can fake it all we want, but there is one that sees all that's going on, all that's happening in our minds, in our hearts, what's happening behind closed doors, and that's what's happening to this church. And Jesus says, I know your works. I know what you're doing, and I'm going to address what you're doing. And then he begins the address. Uh, He says this about himself in chapter uh, 13. He says this. This is who I am. I know who you are. He says, this is who I am. He says three things about himself in this uh, small verse. He says, the first thing is this. I am the words of the amen. He calls himself amen. Uh, This is the only place in all of scripture that Jesus himself refers to himself as amen. And so we must look at what does the word amen mean? Uh, Amen means that we would, when we amen someone, uh, just like this morning when some were done singing, we heard in the crowd, amen. That just means we're in agreement with what's going on. So we say amen. Uh, The Hebrew word for uh, the word amen is that the the Hebrew word is that they would be truthful, that this is the truth. When I say amen, I believe that this is the truth. And so Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea, I am the truth. We'll see that in the next section of this passage. He says this, I am the truth. He knows all. Uh, John MacArthur says this, uh, Jesus is able to say he is the amen because of this. MacArthur says this in his commentary. He, Jesus, is the amen because he is the one who fulfills and confirms all the promises of God the Father. All the promises that are, are quoted and stated throughout the book of the Bible, Jesus has come to fulfill those and to confirm those. So Jesus is saying to God the Father, amen, I confirm what you have said. And so he is saying, not only is, is he God, but I'm also God because I'm the one that gets to stamp the approval on the truth that's been spoken about myself. So Jesus, again, as we've seen in this, this series of letters, that Jesus is saying he is fully man and fully God. And so Jesus is saying, I am the truth. I am the amen. And then he says this in verse uh, the next part of 14, that he's the faithful and the true witness. Jesus describes himself just as just an expansion of the very first thing, the, the, the amen part. If you will, turn with me to John 14. This is what Jesus says about himself. It's a very familiar passage in John 14. John chapter 14, verse 6. Very, very familiar passage of Scripture. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this in verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. And so Jesus here in verse, verse 14 of Revelation is saying back to what he said to his disciples, I am the truth. And then he says, I am the, the, the faithful and the truthful witness that he is in observance of all things, and he's faithful in that, and he's true to that. So we serve a God who is faithful and true. Amen? We have a witness that sees all things. And then in 14, uh, the last thing that he says, so so far he says that he's the truth, that he's faithful, and that then in verse uh, 14 he says this about himself. He says that I am the beginning of all of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. There was a teaching in that time that was saying that Jesus himself was created, which that part is true if you just look at his birth. Jesus was born a man. What was not true about that statement is that 
Jesus, like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, has been eternal for all time. There was no creation to Jesus, the, the deity of Jesus. Yes, the creation of man, Jesus, but not to the deity of Jesus. And so there was teaching in the church of Laodicea in Colossae. We'll get to Colossians when he talks, Paul talks about this false teaching that was happening. That people were saying that Jesus was created, and that is not a true statement. And so Jesus is saying in this phrase that I am the beginning of all of creation, and it comes out of John chapter 1, where John was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is saying, not, not was I created, but I'm the one, my words are the one that spoke creation. It's the very words of Jesus that creates things. God the Father is 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 the father but jesus is the creator of all things the very words that he spoke come into being and so he's saying in this passage no no i i did not i was not created but i am the creator jesus is the creator of all things is what he's saying to them so to the church he's saying i created all things i see all things i'm faithful to all things and i'm true in all things this is the reason i can write to you this is the reason i'm about to write to you this rebuke that I must rebuke you because I am all things. And the church must know that first. So then he says this. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1 first to show what Jesus, through Paul, says about himself. Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes this about Jesus. Verse 15 through 17. Jesus says this, Paul says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Who's he? Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that God is over all through Jesus Christ, that Jesus has reign and dominion over his church, is what he's saying, uh, Paul is saying. It's the same thing that he is saying to uh, the church of Laodicea. So what does Jesus, the truth, have to say to the church? What is his rebuke? He goes right after them. He does not wait. He does not give them any encouragement. He goes right after their hearts, where they have wandered from him and he says this he says this in chapter uh, 15 I know your works you are neither cold nor hot would you if you were either hot or cold so I would because you are lukewarm neither hot nor cold I'll spit you out of my mouth and so he goes after them and Jesus says to them he says to them that you are neither hot or cold you are cold nor hot and so what Jesus is saying there. He's going back to a metaphor for the city of Laodicea. Laodicea had to have all their water piped in from all over uh, the other cities around. They had no way of getting their own fresh water. And so he goes after them and says to them, you are like the water that's coming into your city. Uh, he says you're not hot and you're not cold. If you think about, uh, he's saying I'd rather you hot or cold. Most people look at that passage of scripture and says there's only one way for us to be uh, in the kingdom of God, as Christians, we must be hot. We must be on fire for the Lord. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying be hot or cold. If you think about what Jesus is saying, he's saying to them is this, that the word cold there is talking about 
when you and I go and get a cold fresh of water, what is it to us? I hope to you it's refreshing. If you're, especially the dog days of summer here uh, in Tennessee. It's crazy to think that Tennessee is hotter than Florida. I don't know if you know that or not, but it's way hotter. I've been, I lived in Florida for eight years and moved up here, and I'm like, man, I don't think I ever saw 100 degrees on my thermostat in the car in Florida. I moved here, and I, like, I just walk outside and start sweating. I look at the sun and start sweating out so hot. And so for us here in the South, what, what would be nice? A cold glass of ice-cold sweet tea. Because it's refreshing. It's refreshing. And then Jesus says to them, but you're not cold. You aren't refreshing. You don't bring any refreshment wherever you're going. You are not cold at all. And he says this, you're not hot either. You think about being hot. Hot, and again, it gets colder here than it does Florida too. I've never seen so much snow uh, in the last 10 years, and um, people don't know how to drive in snow either. I could probably do a sermon on that. Or rain or sunny days. I, I don't know what's happening in Nashville. And he says to them, but you're not hot either. You don't bring any comfort. Right? You, wh- wh- what do you think of when I think of, man, the, the way I want to relax is I want to jump in a hot tub. Thank goodness for Brother Ron heating up the the, uh, baptism. It was pleasant to jump in this morning. But if you think about the winter, you don't want a cup of glass of of iced tea. You want hot tea or hot cocoa or a hot beverage. Why? Because it brings refreshment. Just like when you have worked a long day, you want to go take a hot bath for refreshment. And so Jesus is saying to them, you're not hot or cold. You offer nothing. He says you're lukewarm. I don't know if you've ever had lukewarm anything, but it is nasty. Uh, this week, unfortunately, uh, I was thirsty and had left um, a liter of water in my car and thought, man, I'm thirsty, but I had left it in all day. I went to grab it and started chugging it, and I, I about spit it all over the, the dashboard. It was so gross. It wasn't hot. It wasn't cold. It was just nasty. I don't know the temperature. I'll just call it nasty. But it was lukewarm, and that's what Jesus is saying to this church. You are neither hot or cold. You see in the Christian life, we must be those two things. We must either be hot and give relaxation to people and invitation to people, or we must be cold. We must be refreshing to people. But the church has become lukewarm. We're neither. We don't refresh people and we don't relax people, is what Jesus is saying to this church. And he then says to them, he says, because of that, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Here's the saddest part for me. Uh, about this uh, passage of scripture. If you'd like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. This is another way that we can say what Jesus is saying to this church. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 22 and 23. Very familiar passage of scripture. says this, we'll start in 21 actually says this Jesus is saying to them, this is the very end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount we'll get to that in a few months, this it's amazing that this is how he kind of ends uh, his sermon he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast demons out 
in your name and do many mighty works in your name. Like they were doing the deal. They like externally it looked like they had salvation. Right? They they were casting out demons, they were healing people, they were preaching God's word to people. They were prophesying, they were teaching, and then he says this, a tragic verse in verse 23. I believe it's what he is saying to the church of Laodicea. He says to them, and then why well, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's what it means for Jesus to say to the church, I will spit you out of my mouth. He does not even know them. He wants nothing to do with them. He, they've fallen so far away from the truth of God that they are now useless and pointless like lukewarm water. There is no value to lukewarm water, and Jesus is saying to this church, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Another reference is 2 Timothy 3.5. We won't turn there this morning. And then Jesus goes after them and says to them, because you're lukewarm, because this is who you are, this is how you got to where you are today. This is how you became lukewarm. They, he begins to address their self-sufficientness in verse 17. For you say I'm rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind, and naked. So Jesus says to them in this passage, you have become self-sufficient, you become self-reliant. So many people that backslide from the Lord become self-reliant and self-sufficient. There's no longer their need for the gospel. There's no longer their need for a Savior. That's what Jesus is saying to them. You see, this town, this city, we saw it at the beginning, this town was a rich city. It, it, was a, it, it had one of the richest banks in the world at the, that time. And he, they became rich. See, he is right. Jesus is right when he says to them, you've become rich. That is true. Externally, they had become very, very, very wealthy. And that's what Jesus says in his gospel, is that it's harder for the rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Because what happens is, what happens is we become self-reliant on our riches, what we gather. And what Jesus is going to say to us, and what he's saying to us, we must remain beggars. And this church stopped begging of the Lord. They become self-reliant. They had become rich. And they had prospered. And they needed nothing. And what does Jesus say to them? Not realizing that you are what? Wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind, and naked. You see, their riches kept them from really being able to see. I don't know what it is for you this morning. I don't know uh, where you are at in your spiritual journey but have you become and have I become so blind that I don't see my greatest need? Have I come to worship the creation rather than the creator? Like, do I worship the things that God has given me rather than the one who gave them to me? Am I more concerned about my bank account than I am God's bank account? Am I more concerned about what car I'm going to get or what TV I'm going to get or you name it? Or do I really worship the creator, the one who created all things? What Jesus said of himself, that he is the beginning of creation. Do I worship him or do I worship the things he gave me? Because in the end, we will have no things. We are taking nothing with us. I don't know if you 
uh, can believe that or not, but all the things that we accumulate will still be there when we're long gone from here. And what Jesus says is those things will co collect raw, uh, rust and gather moss. We will not take those with us. And I believe that's one of the great temptations of Satan, the great lures of Satan, that we, God has really blessed us in a lot of ways. And we take the blessing and it becomes a curse. Because the blessings draw us away from the Lord. So Satan allows us to accumulate these blessings that no longer are blessings. They draw us away from the Lord. And so what he's saying to this church is that's become you. You are rich. You have it all together externally. But Jesus doesn't talk about their external when he says to them, you are what? You are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. He's talking about their spiritual condition. Is that my spiritual condition this morning? Is that your spiritual condition this morning? Is that the church's spiritual condition? Are we wretched? Are we pitiful? Are we poor? Are we blind? And are we naked with our shame this morning? So Jesus says to them, I'm going to do this for you. Because of your pitifulness, your wretchedness, your poorness, your blindness, and your nakedness. He says, that's who you are, but I'm not going to leave you that way. Amen? God does not leave us wretched. God does not leave us poor. God does not leave us naked. God does not leave us blind. He offers us other things. And this is what he says to them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. Circle that, highlight that. It's about him this morning. The only way that we will have true fulfillment is if we take the counsel and buy it from him. What are we buying from him this morning? What are you buying from him this morning? What are we as a church buying from him this morning? He says this. He lists three things that they must buy from him if they want to experience life and life to the full. He says these are three things that you must buy from me. He says, I lost my, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. The first thing is gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. What Christ is talking about there is the foundation of all that we believe. That gold is this. The gold he's talking to is our salvation. Have we bought our salvation from God? God alone, Jesus Christ alone, is the only one that offers us salvation. Amen. There is no other way to Jesus except through him. That is the only way. And so he says, Paul says it over and over, I've become rich because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our richness is now a kingdom richness rather than a worldly richness. If you have Christ, you are the richest man in the world this morning. If you have Christ this morning, you are the richest man in the world this morning because there is a day that's coming that he says to us, we looked at it last week, we'll look at it again, that because of him, because of what he's done for us, what he's stamped on us, his approval on us, that we will become his kingdom, and we'll get to sit with him on his throne, not beside his throne, but on his throne, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We get to sit with him in that. We become rich with our salvation. Amen? And so he's saying to them, buy that gold from me, because these other two things flow out of that this morning. If we do not have salvation, we will not have the other two. There is no way for us to have the other two things. So that is the foundation of all that we believe to be true this morning is our salvation it comes through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ because of his death and his life and his power 
from death and the resurrection, we are rich this morning. You can take it all, but we can never be robbed of our salvation, which makes us rich. Amen? And he goes on and says this, because of your salvation, because you place your faith and your hope and your trust in me, you have become rich so that you may be rich. And then he says to them, this happens at the moment of our salvation. White garments so that you may be clothed yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. He says to this, in the moment of our salvation, we go from the, the old to the new. That white garment is the, the garments of purity that God has looked on us and stamped us and says he's no longer a sinner. But he has been washed with the blood of Jesus Christ, and he is white, he is pure. And he says, when you have salvation, you now buy that from me. I don't know about you, but so often when we sin, it comes out of Genesis chapter 3. If you have a moment this week, read that chapter of Scripture. It's where Adam and Eve fall. It's where Adam and Eve fall away from the glory of God. It's where Adam and Eve sin for the first time. And what do they do in their sin? They go and they clothe themselves of their nakedness, of their shame and their guilt. And how often do we, in our sin, clothe ourselves? We hide. We try to hide from God. That's what Adam and Eve did. They tried to hide from the presence of God, and God came to them, and he's coming to us the same way and saying to us this morning, where are you? He did not need a GPS. He knew exactly where they were. He wanted to know where their hearts were. What have you experienced that you would hide from me. And so Jesus is saying to us this morning, when we come into salvation, we no longer need to hide. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven and you are set free. You have white garments on you this morning. Do we live that way? Or do we still live in the shadows? And Jesus is saying, we, when we buy salvation, when we acquire our salvation from one, when he gives us our salvation, as if he gives us these new garments to put on, and we are now pure before him. What keeps us pure is one thing he's going to get to, it's repentance. The way we stay in white garments is through repentance. Ongoing repentance, not just the moment of justification repentance, but our ongoing salvation, our sanctification repentance, day in and day out repentance. Repentance is just me saying, we'll get to this, it's just me, me saying to God, I have sinned, I acknowledge that, and I need you. He's pushing them back to their need. He's saying to this church, you have it all, but the thing you do not have is the thing only I can offer, and it's your salvation and it's your forgiveness of sin. There's nothing, you cannot buy that. I give it to you free. You're rich, but you are poor. And in the moment of salvation, we become rich. And then he says this in the last thing. He goes after them, right? So he addresses their, their wealth first. He addresses their clothing next. And then the next thing he addresses is their eyesight, that they were a very medical, medically known city. And so he addresses that with them. He says this, and buy this for yourselves. Anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, in the moment of our salvation, what do you say? The lost become found. The blind are given sight. And what do we see? What is it that we see when we come into salvation? He's saying to them, when we come into salvation, we'll have this ongoing sight of our greatest need. 
He's saying salvation does that. Salvation takes the scales off our eyes and shows us how needy we are to God. So though we become rich, we still are very needy. It's when we think we're no longer needy that we become dependent on self. When we become dependent on self is where Satan lures us away from God. And when we have the eyesight to see, when I wake up in the morning, I am a needy, needy person. I need the gospel of Jesus just as much as I do today as I will tomorrow as I did 10 years ago. My neediness of the gospel of Jesus did not change in the moment of my salvation. It only opened my eyes up to how much how needy I really am for the gospel. And so Jesus is saying, in the moment of our salvation, he's given us new clothes. We are now pure. And in our purity, we have this new eyesight, and we get to wake up, and our eyesight gets to show us the things that draw us away from the Lord. The Holy Spirit is what he's talking about. You now have the Holy Spirit that gives you eyesight that when you sin, you see it and you recognize it. What is our eyesight? Jesus is saying, you now have 20-20 eyesight. We don't need glasses anymore because he's made us new. We have sight this morning. He goes on to say, after your repentance, after you've been clothed with pureness and you've seen light, he now says to this, this, he says in verse 19, this is the reason I'm doing this to you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He's saying to them, I love you. I do this out of love. I am rebuking you out of love. We talked about that in the Jonah series. God send things our way, not to get us, but to draw us back to himself. That is love. And God is saying to this church, I love you. The reason I'm writing this letter to you and I'm rebuking you is because I love you. God says through Paul and other places, I discipline those I love. If you're being disciplined by the Lord this morning, it's because he loves you this morning. You see, the discipline of the Lord is what we need to be zealous about so that we will, what, the next thing says this, so that we'll repent. It's the love of God that draws us to repentance. I, I have this better understanding today. God loves me. He disciplines me. It's his discipline that then I go and repent to him. This is what a, a famous writer has to say about repentance. I love this quote. It's a little long, but it, it's just beautiful. It's by Martin Lord Jones, the, the fine doctor. If you ever get any of his writings or readings, read what he has to say. This is what he has to say about repentance. Repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God. That you deserve the wrath and the punishment of God. That you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and every form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost. We will renounce the world, whatever the cost. The world in its mind, its outlook, as well as its practices. That as you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you go after Christ, that is repentance. That repentance says, I see that I'm a wicked, vile sinner in need of a great God. And then in that, I will renounce at any cost the practices and things of the world, and I will daily take up my cross and follow him. That is repentance, and that's what God is calling this church to, so that they would repent, so they would no longer be wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked, 
but they would be clothed with righteousness, that they would be sons and daughters of God, and that they would be rich in their salvation. He says this, after you repent, it's in repentance that this happens, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What Jesus is saying, through repentance, we have intimacy with God. Our repentance is what opens the door to his coming in. He's standing at the door knocking. He is the one pursuing. All that I have to do in his pursuit is open the door. But it only comes through repentance. The only way that the door opens is me saying to God, yes, I'm a wicked sinner and I'm in desperate need of you. And then the door flings wide open and God comes in and he sits with us at the table. The way that they sat at the table in that day was they didn't sit at a table. They lounged around and laid on each other at a table. I mean, it wasn't a proper five-course meal table. It was like, hey, let's take our shoes off and let's roll around and let's hang out. Let's be intimate with one another. They weren't proper at the dinner table. I'm sure they had their feet on the table, their elbows on the table. That was a place of intimacy for them. And what Jesus is saying, when you open the door, I don't just come in to, to your great room, I come in all the way to your kitchen table and sit and hang out with you and eat with you. The most intimate places. I don't know about you, but some of the most intimate conversations I've ever had with Jenny and our family are at the dinner table. Some of the most joy has happened at our dinner table. Some of the most sadness has happened at the dinner table. When Jesus is saying, I want to come and sit with you at your dinner table. But it comes through repentance. We have a God that pursues us and wants intimate relationship with us. And then the last thing that he says in closing, he says to them, the one who conquers, remember we talked about that in the other six letters, the one who conquers, the one who perseveres to the end, the one who makes it through this wicked, wicked world because of their repentance, their ongoing salvation, when they come into glorification, where there is no more presence or power of sin, when we're in the very heavenly heavens, God says this to them through Jesus, the one who conquers to the end, I will grant him to sit with me where? On my throne. There's no throne waiting for us other than the throne of Jesus himself. And we get to sit with him on his throne. We get to be in dominion with him on his throne. He says this, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, so is it, this is the picture. And it's a beautiful picture. The picture is this. I don't know if you've ever had a little kid come and jump into your lap. But here's the picture. God the Father is holding God the Son who is holding us, his children, in his lap today. That's what's waiting for us. To be in the safety of God the Father forever and ever and ever and ever. One of the greatest delights I have is when I come home and I sit down on the couch and sit and Tennyson runs up to me and just jumps in my lap. Because that's the safest place she knows to be. She will sit there for hours. And little Cedar, though he can't really move yet, the safest place for them where he enjoys the most is not sitting on the floor eating the carpet. He loves sitting with me in my lap, and we just laugh together. And man, if you've ever held Cedar, he is so holdable. I know that's not a word, but I just made it up. I mean, I love holding him. And the crazy part is he loves being held. And that's true in our relationship with God. And it's so true in our relationship with Jesus. As 
God the Father holds Jesus the Son, Jesus the Son, and God the Father hold both of us. His arms wrap around all of us. That's what we have to wait for. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for this morning. But all that comes through one small word. It's repentance. Have we repented of our sin this morning? Are we trying to still hide from God this morning? Are we still trying to be like Adam and Eve this morning? Are we still in the weeds this morning, covering ourselves of our sin? It doesn't matter how many fig leaves you put on yourself. God sees it all. And yet in that passage of Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, God says to them, no, no, let me clothe you. And he made a sacrifice that day. It was the first sacrifice on the planet that day. God sacrificed an animal and took animal skin and clothed his children with animal skin, that he sacrificed blood for them. You see, there's a greatest sacrifice that's happened for us today. It's that Jesus Christ himself now was sacrificed on our behalf, and we are clothed with him today. We are covered in his blood this morning. That is the greatest sacrifice that has ever happened on this planet, and it comes through repentance. Have we repented this morning? If Jesus were to write us a church, as a church, what would the letter say? I hope for you that this series through these seven letters has, has been an encouragement to you. I pray that there's been some reproof in them. I pray that there's been correction in them. But I, overall, I pray that God would have poured out his love for us. That we would see these seven letters to these seven churches as God's love letters to the church. That God loves us and has sacrificed his son because of how much he loves us. I pray that this series over these seven weeks has been such an encouragement to your heart. It's been a joy and an honor to teach it, and I cannot wait to see what God will do uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. Let us close in prayer. God, thanks for this letter through your church. I pray, God, this morning for us, I pray that if there's anyone in here that needs to come to repentance, I pray that they would hear you knocking this morning on the walls of their heart, God. I pray that they would respond to you. Our only response in the knocking is repentance. And so God, if there's anyone in here that does not know you as their Savior this morning, that it would be true about them. They were wretched. They were pitiful. They were blind. They were poor and they were naked. But God, all that changes in a moment in our repentance. God, I pray for us in the room this morning that would be lukewarm we know you as our Savior, but we become lukewarm. We are no longer refreshing, and we are no longer relaxing. I pray that your word would have convicted us this morning. We'd come and we'd repent of those things. We'd repent of being self-reliant and self-sufficient. God, give us, give us gold. Give us salvation. Give us white, pure clothes. Give us eyes to see our great need for you. We are desperate for you, Jesus. We are in desperate need of you. I'm grateful for all that you've done. I'm grateful for your salvation in my life and your ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Continue to lead us as a church. Continue to allow us to be a beacon of light to this lost city, this lost community around us. In God's name we pray. Amen. Let's